standard issue for all women. Hello, Hannah here and welcome to this episode of The Sunday Chops. I hope you're having a nice Sunday. In this episode, we are talking to the fantastic Laura Bates, activist, writer, founder of the Everyday Sexism Project. She has written a new book. It's called Men Who Hate Women. It's absolutely excellent. And rather than me tell you what this interview is about, because hopefully you're just going to go ahead and listen to it, I thought I might take this opportunity to plug a couple of things that are coming up. Next week, Mickey has been on the phone with Laura Lex about her book, Clop Actually, which started with a very amusing thread on Twitter. That's going to be a lot of fun. Jen is easing herself back in slowly to work. She's been on the phone to Mumsnet and to Birthrights about their survey about consent around birth. I have been talking to the charity Petals ahead of Baby Loss Awareness Week. That was a very emotional but very interesting conversation that I had. So keep your ears out for that. There's a new Outside the Box coming next week where we will be talking about DARES, about The Social Dilemma, which is a documentary that has terrified both Mick and I, the Challenger documentary on Netflix, and of course, Ghosts, 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 which I'm very excited about. Also excited that in a couple of weeks I am talking to Megan Roper Phelps, who famously left the Westboro Baptist Church. She's written a book about it, which is called Unfollow, which is really interesting. So loads of good stuff. So if you don't already subscribe to us on whatever platform it is that you listen to your podcast, I suggest you do that now and then you won't miss a thing. Until next time. Hi, we are joined by the magic of the internet by writer, feminist activist and founder of the Everyday Sexism Project, Laura Bates, to talk about her new book, Men Who Hate Women, which is heading for a bookstore near you. Thank you for joining us, Laura. Thank you for having me. Mickey is also here. Hello. Thank you for joining us, Mickey. Thank you for having me, Hannah. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Laura, you begin with a chapter on incels, which as a reader feels a bit like being punched in the face. Was that deliberate? And was that what it felt like to immerse yourself in the manosphere? Yes and yes. Um <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're out it was a real shock I thought I'd seen it all and I thought I knew the worst of it and when I really infiltrated these communities when I properly went in as a member of them and really immersed myself in it for over a year I was completely taken aback by the sheer level of the vitriol and by the scale so it was just how bad it was, but also just how big it was. I knew that this extreme hatred of women existed online because these men have been in touch with me for much of the past decade. What I didn't realise was that hundreds of thousands of other men were listening to them and being sucked into thinking the same way about women. And I felt almost like I was going mad while I was writing the book because I was becoming increasingly aware of this enormous terrorist group. And that is absolutely what it is, this form of online extremism. And I would talk to people about it and they would have no idea what I was talking about. When I told someone I was researching incels, they asked me why I'd gone into microbiology. Um, <laughs> someone else asked me if it was a kind of battery even though anybody I spoke to had heard of the Toronto van attack, for example, 
almost none of them knew that that was a terrorist attack. The vast majority of its victims being women in which a man had killed 10 people and injured 16 specifically. And he told the police explicitly this in his interview when he was arrested in the name of an extreme hatred of women, which ticks every box for any international definition of terrorism. And yet no one had heard of this form of terrorism, even if they knew about the attack. And that's why I started with incels and why I'm afraid it is a bit of a punch in the face, because I needed people to have that experience of opening their eyes and recognising that this extremism exists. None of this feels particularly great for women, Laura, or indeed for our young men. But very little is being done to even recognise it as a phenomenon. So it's barely mentioned in police reports, let alone the media. So I wondered, why do you think people with power are so reluctant, if not deliberately obtuse, when it comes to calling it what it is, which is absolutely misogynistic terrorism? Well, it definitely isn't on the radar. Um, That much became horrifyingly clear when I was researching the book, because I was speaking to people at high level in counterterrorism and, you know, important counterterror organisations. And when I came to the word incel, there would be a long pause on the other end of the phone and they'd ask me to spell it. And then I'd often get a phone call back a few days later to sort of say, uh, no, we don't have any data on this, but can we talk to you about women in Islamist extremism? Because uh, we know all about that. Um, it was it was really shocking. And if you look at all of the kind of national mainstream prevent guidance that's sent out to schools, it, not only does it not have any mention of this form of extremism, it doesn't even mention the words boys or girls. It doesn't even look at gender, in spite of the fact that we know that other forms of extremism are massively gendered as well. Um, I think there's a couple of reasons why people in power are so unaware of it. The first is that it's relatively new and that it just isn't taken seriously. So even people who do have some awareness of these communities existing don't know how extreme it is, don't know how many people they've actually murdered offline and don't realise what a huge phenomenon it is online that we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people, not just a few dozen. And the other thing, I think, is that we don't take domestic abuse seriously. We are so used to men killing women, over two women a week being killed by a current or former partner, um, you know, thousands of women being raped and sexually assaulted every year, 400,000 sexually assaulted and 85,000 raped, that we don't see this as an extreme phenomenon because it's normal. And heartbreakingly, those women who are victims of domestic abuse are often like canaries in coal mines because we know a third of the perpetrators of mass shootings in the States recently, for example, have had histories of sexual or domestic violence or abuse. Um, The red flags are there, but if we don't take violence against women seriously, we don't see them. Yeah. Yeah. Domestic violence has been an epidemic for decades, centuries Absolutely. And it is an everyday form of terrorism. It's very much on a small, specific scale. It's somebody attempting to exert control through force and fear, which is the same thing as what terrorism is on a world stage. The connections are just so clear and so important, I think. But we don't see them. And and while we don't see them, there's a real risk of this stuff flourishing because they are recruiting, they are actively growing these communities. And in the book, I've traced them to the murder or serious injury of over 100 people just in the last 10 years alone, 
two attacks have taken place this year, um, both of them in Canada, a man who stabbed a woman and her toddler daughter in her pram in a, a parking lot, and another a teenage boy who walked into a massage parlor with a machete and killed a woman. Those are two incel terror attacks that have happened just in the last few months alone. So it, it feels like it is escalating, and yet still it really isn't on the radar. Yeah, it feels almost like we're desensitized to it. And a huge point that you return to throughout the book is that the misogyny of the manosphere has already permeated like mainstream society and culture. And you talk about a tier system and how it's dribbling and at times like gushing into every day with like Trump, Piers Morgan, Jordan Peterson, Boris Johnson, Philip Davis, all of these like horrible but highly influential people are just using this day-to-day language. Could you explain a little bit for the listener how that tier system you've seen works? Yes, so basically the kind of really extreme, outrageous, vitriolic stuff that's said in the kind of depths of the online forums is kind of sanitised and repackaged for public consumption as it edges its way up up the chain, if you like, and towards the that very porous boundary between offline and online. So first it gets repackaged into viral YouTube videos that young people see into funny Instagram memes and kind of cultural touch points. And all this is deliberate. It's, it's described by the men who are figureheads of these extreme communities as adding cherry flavor to children's medicine. They're deliberately using memes and jokes to make it more appealing to boys of around 11, which is their target audience. (laughs) Sorry, guys. I'm not the person you want to invite to dinner. (laughs) Just leave everybody (laughs) devastated. But then there is this this symbiotic relationship between these public figures who are very careful about what they say and always maintain this this, um, plausible deniability, this buffer. So you have kind of go-betweens like Steve Bannon, for example, who was Trump's former chief strategist, who has one foot in the sort of murky forums of Breitbart, his website, which has been a kind of hotbed of the alt-right and of these kinds of communities, but then one foot on the White House lawn. And he's the kind of buffer that allows President Trump to keep one step removed from these communities. But he still throws out dog whistles to these communities that he knows they will respond to when he talks, for example, about telling congresswomen of colour to go back to their own countries, or when he talks about invading hordes of Mexican rapists coming to plunder white women, he's absolutely signalling to these communities, but he's still able to kind of create that distance that he could claim that he has no knowledge of them, even though we know from uh, Christopher Wiley, the Cambridge Analytica whistleblower, that Steve Bannon actively courted the votes of incels for Trump during his election campaign. And when you're a kind of pop culture figure, an academic or a TV presenter, for example, there's huge benefit to be gained from just paying lip service to the ideas of these extremist communities, but in a more sanitized and acceptable sort of controversial statement. So, you know, Piers Morgan tweeting 163 times on the day of the Women's March along the lines of things like, I'm planning a men's march to protest the creeping emasculation of my gender by rabid feminists. Now, of course, he could say that he has no knowledge or awareness of these communities, and it's important to say that that may well be the case. But he will nonetheless experience a surge of support, of clicks, 
and of exactly the kind of thing that online media are now looking for in response to those kinds of provocative statements, which then can be capitalized on by creating a so-called debate out of it on his TV show the next day, which benefits the people who are running that. They're then able to take the most controversial clip and put it online for more clicks, more ad revenue. And the cycle continues. You've got Donald Trump saying things like it's a very scary time to be a young man in America. You've got Boris Johnson sort of throwing Islamophobic and misogynistic dog whistles about Muslim women looking like bank robbers and letterboxes. And they will be responded to each time by a surge in support and roars of of appreciation from these online communities, albeit they would be able to maintain that buffer of plausible deniability in terms of not having a direct relationship with them. There's a real intersection with racism and misogyny, isn't there? Absolutely, and very much so in this particular case. So we are talking about communities here which you cannot disentangle from white supremacy and the alt-right and the far-right and neo-Nazis. In fact, in my research, I found again and again that those communities, the white supremacists, the neo-Nazis, they explicitly believe it's easier to draw young people in through anti-feminism and misogyny, and they see it as a way of getting them, as a slip road, if you Mm. like, to the alt-right and then to neo-Nazism. So they are deliberately kind of building up these other men's extremist and male supremacist communities to get young people in but also these communities are actively racist these are not just men who are furious that women won't sleep with them they're particularly furious that women are sleeping with non-white men and if you look at white supremacists and if you look at their attacks they are obsessed with what they describe as replacement theory and with birth rates in other words they're terrified of of their bloodline being contaminated and they believe that white women should be kept as sexual slaves to create a white master race they think black women should be forcibly sterilized it's predicated on the most extreme misogyny and dehumanization of women and you can see that overlap in various terror attacks like the one in germany for example which was absolutely a white supremacist terror attack where uh, shisha bars were targeted the man who carried out that attack was also an incel. There is huge overlap between the two. What I find super interesting about it, of course, it's why you need to get people young. It's because actually none of this makes any sense. I mean, if you look at what incels believe about women, it's a massive fundamental misunderstanding. I don't know. I know virtually no women who judge men on their looks. It's all on personality, to be honest, (laughs) or the vast majority of it. Or these massive contradictions, like you point out with the MRAs, They simultaneously want women to stay at home and look after the kids, but they want men to get custody in case of divorce. So I think you have to be 11 to to think that that's what the world looks like. Yeah, it doesn't add up at all. You've got incels who believe that women are promiscuous, disgusting sluts who also are angry with women for not having sex with them. So they're both (laughs) furious that women have sex and that women won't have sex. But it becomes a bit clearer when you realise that what they really, their problem really isn't about women having sex. It's about women having the choice of who to have sex Mm. with. They see women really as dehumanised objects who they should have access to whenever they want for their own sexual gratification. And that that really is the only purpose of women. But you've also got groups like men going their own way who believe that women are so toxic and deadly that they should be cut out of their lives altogether. And that is their sole purpose who are spending their entire lives on forums talking about women. <laughs> I mean, mm. it's, it, it is kind of laughable, but they 
back up and kind of couch their logic in these twisted sort of mathematical principles, pseudoscience. They make all of these grandiose references to classical mythology. It's very much sort of cultish in how the worldview is sort of pieced together. And it's, it's very effective. Well, now that's my next question. Because when you talk about pickup artists, you do compare it to religion. And mm-hmm. I can actually see a lot of religious overtones throughout the manosphere. Yeah. You know, men going their own way. They preach abstinence. Incels have these saints or martyrs or whatever you want to call it, people who've died for the cause. Do you think these movements are, are filling a sort of spiritual void now that society is more secular? I'm not sure if I would say spiritual, but I would certainly say a sense of community, of belonging, of a higher cause that gives these men a sense of valour, of grandeur, of being able to view themselves as these kind of warriors. All of those ideas of community, of being brothers in arms, they fit very neatly in with the manosphere tendency to present progress towards equality in the wider world as a threat. So the world is telling you that you're a white man and therefore privileged, but you don't feel privileged. So come in here and let us tell you how you're the true victim. And together we can stand against this horrendous attack on us. It's very, very appealing and seductive as a message, especially if you're a young boy who doesn't have a place to go offline to get that same sense of community and belonging and purpose because 600 youth centres have been closed down over the last Mm -hmm. 10 years or so because we've seen massive cuts to youth funding because all of those places for boys offline to interrogate these kinds of anxieties and fears that they might have about a mainstream conversation around privilege just don't really exist and that's really dangerous ironically some of the problems that the manosphere pays lip service to like the male mental health crisis which it does absolutely nothing to address are actually very real issues which if we were to tackle them properly would help to prevent the manosphere getting Mm. its claws into boys in the first place yeah i think it's interesting what you you were both saying there in that they hark back to two religious ideas. There's this this desperation to get back to the past. Like one of the forums you were on, a man said, oh, you know, well, in the Roman days, women were just divvied up anyway. And so, you know, let's get back to there. The Romans knew what they were doing. And like society hasn't progressed at all for them. Yeah, which ties in again really closely with the alt-right and the far-right and white supremacists who are obsessed with this kind of rose-tinted vision of the past and a simple past when they kind of create this false version of a kind of a wonderful past when, you know, white people were in control and men were leaders and women stayed at home and did what they were told. And, And all of it is this kind of revisionist historianism that they do it in a very seductive way that's very effective especially if you're a young person who hasn't necessarily been taught kind of critical thinking skills around sources and online sources and not believing everything that you see online but ironically it's so clever because they who are spreading fake information to these young people then indoctrinate them to believe that anything else they come up against is fake information and they shouldn't Mm. trust it it's yeah, you really were, well done. You were saying that they're, they're not trusting textbooks and stuff because they've been told that's fake information. Yeah, and it's great. It's really clever because, of course, it means that you go in and say, oh, you think 90% of full, uh, rape allegations are false. Let's just quickly look at the actual Office for National Statistics mm. and Ministry of Justice stats on that. And they go, no, because there's a feminist conspiracy at the heart of government and those organisations are complicit. 
I have a 14-year-old nephew and I spend, I would say, about 70% of my time with him on critical thinking. Um, oh. he, he gets really annoyed with me when he tells me something and I say, <laughs> where did you hear that? Let's go and Google it and see if it's true, eh? But I need to. Because yeah, and that's a, a, a conversation. Who knows what YouTube video is going to roll over next on what he's watching? Well, yeah. that's that's one of the questions I wanted to ask, which is that, well, also to say that I might never go on YouTube ever again. <laughs> terrifying. So that section of your book, Laura, was probably the most eye-opening moment for me because I'd done a bit of reading around the other stuff, not as comprehensively, obviously. But learning that 70% of what, anyone watches on YouTube is its algorithms recommendations not their choice and that YouTube as a platform accounts for 37% of all mobile internet traffic in the world so these rabbit holes of horribleness make it an incredible tool for the radicalization of young boys and it's it's absolutely working isn't it it is. And it, it, you know, again and again, research has shown that there is a network, a powerful influencer network of white supremacist and extremist misogynist figures who have very much found ways to game, essentially, and maximise the reach of the YouTube algorithms so that their videos are repeatedly being served up to people who have come on to watch really quite innocuous content and past engineers who have come out of YouTube and turned whistleblowers have said, listen, you need to know, YouTube isn't serving up to you the most relevant content to what you've put in or the most high quality content. Its sole aim is watch time. It wants to keep you watching because then you'll see more adverts and they'll make more money. And we know from scientific studies that the way to keep people watching is increasingly extreme content which is no big deal if you've come on to look at a video about jogging and suddenly you're watching something about ultra marathons. But it does matter if you've come on with a really baseline question about what is feminism anyway? And suddenly you're being told women hate men and they're out to destroy you and you're a victim and you need to run for your life now. Um, Well, you actually did that experiment as well, didn't you? I did. Yeah, I describe in the book going from a completely blank slate and, you know, clearing all my cookies and private browser, everything, so that there couldn't be anything to kind of sway it. And starting from a video of Emma Watson at the UN, just talking about feminism in very, very simple terms, within a literally two videos, you're being told that feminism is an angry, man-hating movement, that the gender pay gap is a myth, that women lie about rape, and it spirals so quickly. And it's very effective because these videos have got very high quality production values. It's often people being interviewed on kind of popular shows. It all seems quite legitimate. And that mainstream media platforming of these kinds of ideas and debates, they're really accountable, I think, in terms of making these extremist movements seem more legitimate and more appealing to teenagers. It's much easier as a teenager to be convinced by somebody online telling you that there is this hate movement and that men everywhere are losing their jobs because women are making up false allegations when you can hear the presenter of the Today programme saying that Me Too might be a witch hunt. Mm. It, it definitely oh, shifts that window of acceptable discourse. And that's just one of so many examples. You know, the way that the media chooses to portray modern feminism, you beg and beg and beg them to cover period poverty or the detention of refugee women. And then you get seven emails asking you to come and have a debate about Kleenex calling its tissues man size. 
or um, yeah. Man Flu, Fact or Fiction was a TV debate I was asked to be in. Or do you think that a men working overhead sign is sexist and will you come on to debate it? Well, all of that plays into this idea of these extremists online that women are making up things to be worried about and there aren't any real problems and men are the real victims. Well, yeah, that women are trivial. Given the extraordinary amount of truly vicious online attacks you have been subjected to by the manosphere over the last decade you've studiously avoided making this book all about you (laughs) but when it does appear on our shelves to them it is going to be all about you so I just wanted to know how you've prepared yourself mentally for that Well, I've been preparing myself physically for about a decade because I've been receiving maybe 200 rape or death threats on a bad day for eight and a half years now. So that's actually quite, you know, useful. And so far as my, um, I've moved house several times. I've my address is extremely, extremely closely guarded secret. I've kind of locked everything down in terms of any details of my personal life whatsoever. Um, But it has there has been a, a pretty massive uptick since the book came out there are men fantasizing about you know what pieces of furniture they'd rape me with and what internal injuries they'd cause and um they've been trying to hack my email um they've been talking about finding me and tracking me down amongst the forums that I infiltrated for the book since the publicity around the book there are now men posting things on there saying things like which one of you fuckers is Laura Bates and looking for me essentially I don't think you can really prepare yourself psychologically for it it's just it's just an ongoing process for me there are good days and bad days but I think it helps me to feel that there is a purpose and that I'm doing it for a reason and I really do believe given that women are dying and that boys are being radicalized and groomed without anybody knowing about it and therefore nobody being able to stop it given that you've got government reports on terrorism which look at the periods in which dozens of women have been killed in the name of this ideology and don't include those murders even though they are absolutely tracing animal rights extremists and people with extreme views on abortion Mm -hmm. during the period of which nobody was killed in the name of those ideologies you can't not think that we have to tackle it It, it, you know it's like being able to see this meteorite coming towards us and I'm convinced that more women will die in the name of these ideologies if we don't start to talk about it so it helps to feel that there isn't really any choice I suppose and that hopefully there's a there's a purpose and a you know a positive outcome to be gained from doing it yeah because there's no joy in being right is there in that there's no joy in you saying this is going to happen and then it happening no. no no absolutely not I guess it might sound like an odd question, and it sounded odd every time I've asked it over the past few months, but are, are you hopeful at all that this is changeable? Because reading the book, it, it is, it's beautifully written, Laura, but it is bleak as fuck, mate. So are, <laughs> is, is there any hope there? I, I mean, I think so. I have to believe that there is. I think one thing, ironically, that makes me quite hopeful is that there's huge room for improvement because we're doing nothing at all right now. <laughs> so that's good, you know, because often you kind of think, oh, what else could we be doing? Well, here I can think of loads of things. You know, we can be holding social media platforms accountable where they are providing a conduit for active incitement to real life violence. We could see all of this stuff 
taken under the banner of counter-terror organizations and taken into account when teachers are being funded and trained to look out for signs of radicalization and to support young people. There is so much we could do that we're not doing right now. And so that's quite a reason for hope. And the other reason for hope, ironically, is the other teenage boys that I'm meeting in schools, not the ones who are coming out with the fake statistics and the woman hating, but the ones who tiptoed up to me after a talk recently in a little group of three and waited till everyone else had left and said, um, we were thinking about starting a feminist society. And then they kind of looked at each other and went, can we? <laughs> are we allowed? <laughs> there are so many young people of all genders who are so politically engaged, so much more aware of feminism than anybody I knew when I was at school. Um, you know, things are changing. And ironically, this young generation who are being written off as snowflakes and cowards and whatever you want to call them are actually a group of incredibly brave, empowered young people who are challenging things and do want to change it. Um, but it is, it's a real battle. And if we just think, oh, things are changing, everything's great. If we don't recognise that there is an organised hate movement inciting violence against women, then we won't be able to prevent more tragedies from happening. Hannah, do you have anything else, love? Um, no, I don't think so. Well, I mean, I do, but Laura, yeah, does, have, <laughs> Laura does have a limited <laughs> amount of time. I mean, I could literally talk about this all day. Because this is one of the not great things about living alone is that I had to bombard people with text messages yesterday saying, when I was reading the last bit that I was reading yesterday, bombarding them with messages saying, did you know this? Did you know this? Did you know this? <laughs> um, and yeah, that's not necessarily their idea of fun while they were trying to have their dinner. <laughs> Which, so I, in, a, in a small way, Laura, I got a little brief glimpse into what your life is like, just absolutely dropping a rate fax in the middle of a totally normal conversation. And I, I was doing the same last night as well. Poor Gary's just trying to eat his tea and he ended up with his head in his hands. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, reading him bits from the book. I was curious about the title because Men Who Hate Women was originally the title for The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, was it not? It was, yes. That wasn't a deliberate reference in any way. I just I wanted to call it that because I really wanted to force people to face the reality of these groups instead of talking about violence against women and rape as these kind of things that are just out there waiting to happen to women. I wanted to force us to confront the reality of perpetrators and organised groups of perpetrators and a kind of hate movement of white men, which is such a slippery thing to get hold of. But it's, I have found myself several times since the book coming out having to emphasise the title is Men Who Hate Women, Not Men Hate Women. Yeah, um, yes. And, you know, the book very much also documents and interviews men who are at the forefront of this kind of wave of uh, men's movement, which arose alongside feminism in the 60s and 70s, who are very much at the forefront of tackling this and fighting it. You know, good men who hate men who hate women and want to tackle the problem and are very much doing that. So, you know... Uh, a lot of people have asked me if you have to be a woman who hates men to write a book about men who hate women. And I really think the opposite is true. You know, this book is just as much about protecting and supporting boys and the real men suffering from the problems that the manosphere claims to care about as it is about stopping the violence yeah. to women that comes about as a result of their ideology. Absolutely. That's why we do a series of interviews on International Men's Day in which we talk about things that should be the reason that International Men's Day exists. It should exist so that we can tackle the fact that men are committing suicide in horrendous numbers and that men are suffering from mental health problems and not talking to anyone about it and that men are drinking too much and not talking to anyone about it. So that's what we've, we've tried to do because sometimes we'll get people say to us, 
men get 364 days a year, why are you giving them an extra day? And you're like, because they do have genuine problems. Absolutely. And because every media outlet out there is spending that day having a fight about, you know, men against women and making it into mm. this kind of debate for clickbait and controversy, which again, doesn't serve men either. No, not at all. It's such a bold title because it's it's a huge bugbear at one of my like drums that I bang a lot is domestic violence and the media's like approach to words around domestic violence and how it describes it. Uh, and yeah, the, just the knowledge that the fact that you've called it men who hate women will get a lot of men being very hateful towards you, telling you that men don't hate women and explaining exactly how they're going to punish you for saying that. And it'd be hilarious if it wasn't leading to like women dying. Yeah. It's just, it's madness. The day the book was published, I had an email from a man about how it's outrageous to suggest that men hate women and that there's no such thing as sexism. And the title of his email was you evil cunt. (laughs) I think he made a good point, Laura. It's his own goal, isn't it? I was going to put that in the intro and I crossed it out at the last minute. We're talking yeah, to writer and coward. evil cunt, Laura Bates. <laughs> I'll put that in a tweet, though. We'll make sure we tweet that. <laughs> Might put it on my business card. <laughs> Laura, thank you so much for coming to chat to us. Like we said, we could talk to you all day about this. So Men Who Hate Women are available everywhere. Yeah. No, Men Who Hate Women is available from all good bookshops, Yes. Yes, thank you so much for having me. Any time. Standard issue for all women.